what's a good amount of time to sleep for children and for adults? So adults, the range is between seven and nine hours. I can tell you that typically people don't sleep nine hours, at least New Yorkers. (laughs) (laughs) Definitely not. Hi, I'm Ariel Charnas, and this is In House, my podcast about all the happenings in my life. Whether it's fashion, entrepreneurship, marriage, or mom life, you'll hear it all right here on In House. Hey guys, welcome back to In House with me, Ariel Charnas. This podcast is all about my world and everything that keeps me busy. Today, we're off to a new adventure. I'm so excited to invite new guests on the podcast that cover many of the themes you've asked me about, plus the subjects that matter to me as a mom, such as parenting, relationships, fashion, and more. You're going to start hearing from more people outside my circle that are the best at what they do. Along with my family and friends, I'll be joined by specialists, doctors, authors, fellow founders, entrepreneurs, and much more. Also joining me today as a guest co-host is my amazing cousin, Candace Miller, who was a guest on a previous episode. Candace is also a dedicated mom and someone whose judgment I trust and seek out. So I wanted her to join me on today's discussion with our special guest. I'm very excited to introduce today's guest, Dr. Janet K. Kennedy. She is a clinical psychologist and founder of NYC Sleep Doctor, a consultation and psychotherapy practice dedicated to treating sleep problems in babies, toddlers, and adults. She spent eight years at the Manhattan Veterans Affairs Medical Center, where she developed the Sleep Disorders Treatment Program. Her book, The Good Sleeper, The Essential Guide to Sleep for Your Baby and You, is now available and a must-read for new parents. Please welcome Dr. Janet Kennedy. Hi, Dr. Kennedy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. This is a very exciting conversation for me to have because I have a five-year-old who doesn't sleep and two others who do. So I'm very, I mean, I read through your book, but I'm very curious to hear everything that you've learned over the years and and pick up some advice from you. Perfect. Do you want to start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your career and what drew you to be a psychologist. Sure. I'm a clinical psychologist. You don't go to school to be a sleep doctor straight away. Right. So I basically always wanted to be a therapist, I think. It just always appealed to me. And I was pretty much on a single track all the way through school, became a psychologist and was always really interested in health psychology which is sort of the the way that psychology can be helpful for physical health. So I ended up going to grad school and landed at the VA hospital in Manhattan for my internship because they had a really strong health psychology track. So at the end of that, they offered me a job as soon as they could. And I went back and was the psychologist in primary care. They also said to me at the very beginning, we have a problem with sleep and we're dispensing a lot of medication for sleep and we want to see what else we can do. The beauty of the VA, it's so wonderful because they really value psychology. And I was allowed to block out a big chunk of my schedule to just research what could be done. I found a protocol to help people with sleep. It was basically the initial version of CBTI, which is the treatment of choice for insomnia in adults. It's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia specifically. And I started a whole program there at the VA, and it was really, really wonderful. I also was starting a family and started to panic about how am I going to be here at work with a baby at home if I'm not sleeping. And so I, again, did a lot of research and found that the way that you raise a good sleeper is 
in fact, somewhat counterintuitive. And a lot of the common advice that you hear from the people in your life, all the well-meaning folks, tends to be wrong. I ended up having a really great sleeper, my first child and also my second child. But people were just astounded when we did a lot of traveling his first year. And every time we'd go somewhere and I just kind of like, oh, it's time for his nap. And I'd go take him and put him down somewhere and show right back up to hang out with the adults. And they're like, where's your kid? Like, he's sleeping. (laughs) I just became the de facto advice giver for friends and friends of friends and kind of made itself into a calling along with the adult sleep. As I got to a point where I was ready to start a private practice, needed some more flexibility, I started to think about, well, what would be a good way to establish this? How could I get people in? And sleep just seemed just natural, a natural fit for that. So a website and a business model later, and here I am. (laughs) That's incredible. So I have to ask you, so what is the best advice on raising a good sleeper? That's a big question. I think the most important thing you need to start with is that good sleepers are really raised. They're not born that way. I mean, certainly some kids are calmer than others. Some kids are naturally better at self-soothing than others. But it's a parent's responsibility to facilitate the development of healthy sleep. And that happens from birth. And, and if you have a great infant sleeper, you might have a bad toddler sleeper and it's your job then to figure out what's what and get on a better path. And same goes for when their sleep clock changes as they get into elementary school, middle school, high school, all of these developmental changes. So it's really a parent's job to be on top of it and not just assume that it's going to get better because when you kick the can down the road, it comes back to bite you in a very serious way. (laughs) I'm just thinking about how screwed I am right now. (laughs) No, no, there's always, but that's the other piece of it is that you can always jump in and fix it. Yeah. You know, what do you suggest for new moms and adults who are trying to cope with all of those anxieties of having a new baby and, and trying to also get a good amount of sleep and what is the right amount of sleep? When you have a new baby, it's really, really hard. You know, like you can't get enough sleep unless you have a lot of help and you aren't breastfeeding. So, you know, you're in a situation where you're at a real disadvantage. If you add to that anxiety, mood disturbance, hormonal fluctuations, of course, and all of that can create a, a perfect storm. So I suffered from postpartum depression myself, undiagnosed, even as a psychologist with my second child. I look back at that time now and I wish I could just call myself on the phone and say, like, get some help because this is unnecessary, you know. And so I'm I'm actually working a lot these days with women who are experiencing postpartum sleep disturbance. Whether that's full-blown postpartum mood disorder or not doesn't really matter. So you can approach it from a behavioral standpoint. I'll go into the tips and tricks for that. But I also want to be super clear that if, if you're taking all these supplements and all these medications and they're not really making you feel like you're on top of the problem, then really looking towards perhaps an antidepressant to stabilize everything. It's always worth entertaining, whether you end up with that or not. No woman who's breastfeeding wants to take medication, 
But if you look at the science and you work with a reproductive psychiatrist who knows typically her stuff, you will be reassured because there is, in fact, science around this that shows that many, many SSRIs, meaning Zoloft in particular, um, have been studied to look at what the impact is on breast milk, what the impact is on the baby, what the impact is during pregnancy even. I've seen woman after woman who, you know, we do everything. We work, you know, we try everything. And then at some point they're ready to work with a psychiatrist. And it's it's just like the doors open and you feel like the mother you're supposed to be. And so why would you not take care of yourself that way, right? That. Yeah. So speaking of adult sleep, I actually have a husband who... I mean, if he doesn't wake up from the crying or this, I mean, I do like a smack, you know, like <laughs> it's your turn, your turn, you go. But I know that you talk about the crying out method mm-hmm. in your book. And I'm just curious how, you know, the advice you'd give on someone who has other children. So the crying out method disturbs everyone else's sleep. Mm-hmm. I have a five-year-old, like I said, and then I also have a three-year-old and a seven-month-old who those two sleep beautifully, but my five-year-old Every single night, not one night that goes by that she does not scream and cry for me and my husband. And we get up, I would say, two, three times a night to bring her back to her room or to go and get her to be quiet because we don't want to wake the other two. Right. So I'm just curious, like, I I, I feel like there's it's just a never ending cycle because if we let her, you know, deal with it on her own and not tend to her, then it ruins everyone else's sleep. Right. And we just keep waking up every single night. So you're stuck in this situation where, you know, the short-term fix is protecting the younger two, but it's keeping this horrible problem in place that isn't going to get better. So basically, you have to figure out how to endure the pain of whatever the intervention is. And it's not going to be straight up cried out for a five-year-old. They're not, it's not the same as with an infant. Yeah. First of all, that solution is more nuanced, A, and you also have to take just the bigger view, which is maybe your younger kids, will. there's a way to shield them like grandmas or everybody sleeps in, you know, you have a camp out with them in one room with white noise and, you know, and then you have one parent in another room monitoring the situation with your five-year-old. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's many ways around this, and this is why I don't I I don't actually do this as much anymore. But I used to go and do home visits. home visits to really like look at the situation, and often I, it was like me in a tape measure figuring out where does this crib fit because you think the crib right. doesn't fit anywhere but your room, you're wrong. Like and and all kinds of solutions that when you're stuck, it's really hard to step back and say, okay, somebody can sleep in this closet, and it's nice and quiet, and if we do that for three days and we're super consistent with the five-year-old, then maybe we can get to where it won't be so disruptive and we can be consistent. You do recommend the crying out method for a five-year-old, pretty much. Not cry it out. Because they can get up 
and go to your room. Yeah. And be like, so you use incentives and you try to first you want to figure out, is this anxiety? If it's anxiety, yeah. um, then you want to think about bigger strategies yeah, for helping her deal with separation and getting her to master that feeling and realize that there are other solutions besides you taking the feeling away by being there. Mm-hmm. You know, you may want to consult a, just a straight up child psychologist to help you yep. assess that part of it and make sure your parenting is on point and consistent all day long. Mm-hmm. And then you go to the bigger intervention of like, OK, you know, one thing you can do uh, would be give her a token, a parent pass. Yeah. And if she wants to come visit you, she has to use it. And then if she uses it, she doesn't get to do it again, right? It's one time, one mm-hmm. visit. And then if she doesn't use it and she still has it in the morning, she gets to trade it in for something cool. Right. It's just your basic rewards, right? So yeah. as they get older, you have to get a little more sophisticated. At five, it could be like a, you know, two-minute video they get to watch while they eat breakfast or like, you know, a handful of Fruit Loops in their Cheerios. Like, it doesn't have to be, you know, a Barbie, <laughs> you know, or something. Right, that, like, right. It might have to be a Barbie for yeah, you. Yeah, <laughs> but, you know, I mean, you you figure out, because it has to be sustainable, you have to be able to do it every day. Uh, you're at, you know, I see people like, oh, sticker charts don't work. And it's like, yeah, sticker charts don't work if the anxiety is high because who wants a sticker instead of their mom? Right. So, and certainly delayed rewards where you add up stickers to then get your ice cream cone, that's not going to work either. You need the no. immediate reward and you have to reward. They're not going to be motivated until they know they can earn it. So if you say to her mm-hmm. at night, if you still have your ticket, you'll get, you know, a special you know, dance with me or something in the morning. She's like, you know, screw that. I I can't get that. Like, I don't know how to do that. So she won't even try. Right. But the the so the first night that she spontaneously sleeps through the night, which will happen, then you have the party in the morning, and then that becomes the motivation. So in the meantime, if she's using her ticket and then she's flipping out because she wants another visit. You may have to back away slowly where she has to put herself to bed, but you'll stand outside the door. And if she's freaking out, then it's okay because you know you're there. She knows you're there. She's mad but not scared. Difference would be for a five-year-old, she might very well be scared if you're staying in your bed saying you're on your own. A seven-month-old is is not going to be, and that's you know, made yeah. a semi-controversial view, but, you know, I've been doing this a very, very long time and nobody's ever said to me, I wish I didn't do it with a baby. Right. But as they get older, it's more, it's more nuanced and you need to be more concerned about what they're aware of and, and how they're interpreting stuff. And you don't want to make them, you know, more anxious than they already are. Right. To go back to sleeping though, what is for, what is a normal amount of, like how, What's a good amount of time to sleep for children and for adults? So adults, the range is between seven and nine hours. I can tell you that typically people don't sleep nine hours, at least New Yorkers. (laughs) Definitely not. (laughs) And, you know, I always 
sort of choke when I have to say that because people get really wrapped up in hitting a specific number that is going to lead to good health. Yeah. Because you all of your like Apple News clickbait is, you know, if you don't sleep 7.2 hours, (laughs) you're going to have dementia and you're going to get fat and you're going to, you know, whatever. What's really important is is to figure out how much sleep you need. If you're regularly getting under six and a half, I would be concerned and want to make sure that's really all you need. But Mm -hmm. it might be. I do see people who ruin perfectly good sleep by trying to get more than their six and a half. And if you just consistently stick with that six and a half, they're actually quite fine. Right. And what about children? So children, it changes over the, you know, developmental cycle. So, you know, when they're babies, you know, newborns sleep like 19 hours a day. Yeah. Once you hit the sort of four to six month range, they're sleeping typically 10 to 12 hours at night and getting some, you know, three good naps in. Once they drop and start dropping naps, they usually add time onto the night. So your 18 month old might be napping once for two hours and sleeping, you know, 12 hours instead right. of 11. You know, but again, it, it's really important to approach it more with curiosity as opposed to shame. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, my kid isn't getting enough and what am I right. doing wrong? Like, think about, okay, what do you feel like your kid really needs when you put everything in place so that they have healthy sleep associations, they have a good place to sleep, they are able to self-soothe, they get themselves to sleep and back to sleep and independently. You're not rewarding wakings right. with your presence, things like that. Then if your kid is on the lower end, your kid's on the lower end, and that's okay, too. Right. Um, You know, as they get into school age, you know, 10 hours, 9 hours, and then it starts to decline, and then it shoots back up in teenage years. Teenagers need more and get less than anybody else. And then, you know, uh, then you hit post-adolescence where you're back to the 7 to 9. Yeah. And for married couples, can you talk about sleeping as a couple and how important that is? Sleeping as a couple is, you know, I mean, not everybody does it, frankly. A lot of people these days will sleep in separate rooms because they feel like they get better sleep that way. Right. It definitely is one solution, but both partners have to be up for it. Yes. Right? Of course. Because if you, if one partner is is feeling neglected, and feels embarrassed to tell people or just feels like, oh, this means something's wrong in my marriage, that's going to kind of snowball. Right. But certainly most people still do sleep together. And, you know, there's there's a lot to think about there. You know, you have different schedules potentially, different ways that you fall asleep and wake up, different needs for space and temperature. So it can be a negotiation. Typically, I say that a cool temperature wins and anyone can always put on more clothing or blankets that, you know, it's it's so much harder to sleep when you're hot that it's really kind of not fair to turn the thermostat up on someone who needs it cooler. Like, is it better for it to be cold in the room? It is better for it to be cold in the room. Interesting. Because the body naturally cools at night and that helps you get deep sleep. And women in particular, because our hormones fluctuate first predictably and then unpredictably later in life, uh, that that we're more susceptible to that. Right. Just like with regards to this, and I know it actually applies to both Ariel and I, iPads and, and iPhones and computers mm. and electronics when it comes to sleep, uh, you know, yeah, TV, all of the stimulation in the room, you know, for us, for our kids as they get older, because they have their iPads, they have yeah. their phones, 
what do you think about that? And like, what are your, your kind of your tips for how to treat those electronics for the nighttime to get a better sleep? My tips are if you can keep your phone out of the bedroom. And by can, I mean, if you're not worried about being reachable in an emergency. That right? scares me with family, with like the parents. Right. And so like, I don't know. I have an old school landline, I have to say. And, <laughs> you know, it it makes me a dinosaur. But I love that. The only people who call me on that are my parents. Right. You know, my kids know that number so that if they're on a sleepover or something and they need to reach me That's smart. at night, they can that to me solves a lot. And, you know, it's super cheap to get a landline. I know, it's like it feels so obsolete these days. I, <laughs> I recommend that because there are very few people who really need to reach you at night. You can solve that problem. Right. You are way too reachable with your cell phone next to you. Um, and your cell phone just represents your day. As soon as you touch it, you're back in your day and all of everything that means. You really need that separation, that buffer, so your body and mind can settle into the work of sleep. Because, like, mm -hmm. important things happen while you're sleeping. Yeah. And if your mind is all over the place and on the, you know, I guess they used to call this information superhighway, it's a good metaphor because we are Zooming constantly with so much stimulation. Our brains aren't designed for that. We need to force a separation and, like, a downshift and that begins with the phone. So would you recommend that they don't look at the iPads or TV before bed? Like, when do you think that that should stop, to you know, so that they yeah. can have a really great sleep? So blue light is one aspect of the phone. And you can solve for that partially with filters. You can get mm -hmm. screen protectors that have blue light filters. You can put it on night shift. You can do you make them wear glasses even. It only it's not going to add up to a hundred percent blue light filter. Right. And what blue light does is it signals to the brain to delay melatonin onset. You don't want that. <laughs> is that T is that TV too? It's TV, but it's a it the exposure is a little different because TV's farther away. Right. And you blink when you watch TV. You don't blink when you look at your phone. Your eyes are really wide. You don't? Well, I mean, God. a lot less. I'm sure you, yeah, yeah. Right. That's why your eyes get dry. It's why, you know. It's so wild. I think it's a good idea to put away handhelds, let's say, after dinner. And TV, you'd feel differently about. TV depends on how stimulated they are by it. And, you know, you want to sort of be mindful of content. And, you know, yeah, of course. when you have multiple children and they go to bed at different times, I'm not going to tell anybody not to use TV. Like, that's right. safer than not using TV, right? Yeah. I just think it's, you just have to be kind of mindful about how stimulated they get. Is, does it become a fight to turn it off? Like, you have to be super consistent about your rules and be very clear from the beginning what they're getting and when it stops so that there's not that question of like, can I have more? Right. The answer to that is always no. no. You know, you start yeah. out with, I mean, I tell people this about reading books at bedtime too. It's like, you want to read three books, have them pick out all three at the beginning. And then the delay tactic of one more book is very easy to respond to and say, no, we have these three books. We read these three books. Answer's always the same. And and the fight, even if they continue to ask, they don't fight as much because it's not worth it. They're not going to get what they want. What are your thoughts on um, siblings who share a room or sleep together? Is 
and or if one has sleep issues, like, is that really bad for the other one? Like, what are your thoughts on kids that? It depends. I mean, I think sharing a room is a great thing in general because it teaches them to share. It teaches them to be mindful of someone else's experience and be, you know, generous and sort of collaborate in their space. Right. But if someone really has a sleep issue that is ongoing and not responding to treatment or interventions, then you don't want to throw one kid under the bus, yeah, you know? Of course, so of But you also can, if they like each other, you can use sleeping together as an incentive to say like, well, you know, your sister can't be in here unless you're able to not wake her up. Right. And 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 the other thing I always tell parents is going back to your original um, question about like the kids disturbing each other and wanting to to help your five-year-old without harming the others. When you add a, a second or third kid to the mix, the older kid is always going to feel like they have the power to get you to do what they want by, you know, making the other one upset. So like if you if you approach that by saying, don't wake your sister, don't wake your brother, right. then they know that you really want that baby to stay asleep. And if that they wake so the baby up. up so, <laughs> <laughs> so basically God. I tell parents, I tell parents that you have to make it clear that it sucks for the kid. Not that it sucks for you if the baby wakes up. Like, right. sucks for you that I have to go now take care of this baby who was very rudely woken up. Sucks for you that you can't have your sister sleep with you because yeah. you can't, you know, stay in your bed or whatever. Like, all of that has to come back as the consequences being for the child who's creating the problem because otherwise they use it to um, to get negative attention from you. Right which is not good for anybody. Right. So, Dr. Kenny, where can everyone find you? Where can they follow you? And where can they purchase your book? My website is nycsleepdoctor.com. That's the best way to learn everything about me and to contact me. You can also find me on Instagram at nycsleepdoctor. Also on Facebook at the same. And my book is called The Good Sleeper, The Essential Guide to Sleep for Your Baby and You. You can get it anywhere that books are sold, ebooks as well. It's a great read for the very tired parent. It's written to, <laughs> you know, to really sort of just soak in even when you're very tired. So I hope it's helpful for everyone. This has been an incredibly insightful conversation. I can't wait to share this with our audience. Thank you so much again for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure. And thank you, Candice, for being the co-host. I love being here, and I love learning from you, Dr. Kennedy. It was so fantastic having you and being able to get all of these answers for our following. So yeah. thank you Thanks so, so much. <laughs> and thank you to all the listeners out there. Please come back for more as we welcome some new guests to the podcast. You can reach out to us with any questions about the podcast or who you want us to bring on. Just DM us on Instagram at Something Navy. See you next week. That's a wrap for today's episode of In-House. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with more thoughtful discussions and amazing guests. Make sure you follow on Spotify and Apple Podcasts so you never miss an episode. And of course, follow me at Ariel Charnas and at Something Navy. See you next week.